Matthew 16, um, pivotal chapter. Um, we're, we're in this year-long series, year-long, starting in September, going through May, about the beginning of a movement. And Christianity, what, what it moved it, what inspired it, why, you know, Jesus started something, he's God in the flesh, came, died for our sins, was raised back to life so that we might be saved, and started a movement we call the church, Christianity and the apostles, uh, and others got it going, and, and it is what it is today. Good or bad, it is what it is today. Christ is still Lord, and people are only saved through Jesus, none of that's changed. And, and today we come to a really a pivotal chapter because uh, it has to deal with just kind of the formation of the church, really. People sometimes say, when did the church start? And you hear different answers. People say, well, it started in Acts chapter 2 when, you know, the Holy Spirit came. And some, you know, get super spiritual and it started at creation. You know, yeah, okay, I got that. It, the church starts conceptually in Matthew 16 at an event. Um, in Matthew 16 is one of these places that what we're going to be at, Jesus of the apostles at Caesarea Philippi, the disciples. Um, there's, Mark and Luke both have it, but Matthew 16 is the, kind of the, the complete, the definitive. Matthew was there, probably knew what he was writing about kind of thing. Um, and it, it is about six months out from the cross, and the focus of the ministry of Christ changes. It, it, it ceases to be quite as public as it's been. He begins to focus more on the apostles and other disciples and followers to get them where you know they kind of need to be. <coughs> in verse thirteen, well, let me just say this: in chapter sixteen, it starts off Pharisees and Sadducees testing, questioning Jesus and all that. He kind of he kind of leaves them and and, and those things. He leaves everybody and crosses the river, and goes on. And so, what happens in verse twelve is that. Uh, um, he ends up talk, he finishes talking about the Pharisees and Sadducees. In verse 13 of chapter 16, it says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And they also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. You know, it's just it's a fairly well-known passage, kind of one of those passages you've read and read, and you've heard countless sermons on. A lot of the sermons you've heard probably not as accurate as they should be. And it's easy to gloss over and not realize what's happening here and how important it is. He leaves the area of the Sea of Galilee, and he goes about 25 miles northeast to an area called Caesarea Philippi. It's a beautiful area. Uh, it's the kind of area you would go to get away from it all. It'd be like, you know, drive up to Riodosa or Cloudcroft. And if you could go there and if you, if you could just kind of picture the mountains right there going, you know, to Dripping Springs or across and to Aguirre Springs and the beauty of it. It was, a, it was set in the hill country. It was rugged. It was rough. Um, and it was the home of a lot of different religions. There was a, a cliffside, a hillside that was pretty, pretty ragged and crackety up there. And on it was a, was a city. It was the city of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, before that, it had been the city of Panes. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, uh, Herod, the 
Philip Herod had uh, kind of re- redone it, rebuilt it. it. So it was named Philippi, kind of after him. He named it Caesarea after uh, Caesar Tiberius, I think it was. Um, and in that place, eventually, would be a, a home of the worship of the Caesars, the emperors. Some dispute, you could argue, whether they were worshiping the Caesar at that point. Um, we know a few years later they would be, but m- maybe some were worshiping Caesar there. Um, it was believed in the hills, and you could see caves that, uh, in the Greek mythology that the Greek god Pan was from that area. That's why the original city was called Panes. Um, he came out of the hills there. In the Old Testament times, it had been a place of paganism, the worship of Baal. There were probably still some altars, because it was in the high country, that may, the rocks may have fallen. It was also a place where they worshipped God. And uh, the Jews had had some places there of, of worshiping God, not necessarily in the truest sense, but it was there. And so it was this beautiful place, and it was, it was kind of rugged, and, and there was stuff all around, and there was all these reminders of religion of all types. And he was there with his disciples, probably just the 12. The other gospels make it sound like there are a few other people that showed up, but they probably came a little bit later. And so here in uh, Matthew 16, as Jesus just had these guys, yes, he, he, he gets down to discussion. They're probably talking. They've probably been talking a lot. We just have a very small amount. And so he just says, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now, the phrase Son of Man is how he refers to himself. It's taken from uh, Daniel 7. Um, and it, it's a reference to being really the Messiah. He's essentially saying, who is the Messiah? I mean, I, I'm the Messiah. He's claiming to be the Messiah. By calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. There again, I've told you before, there are people who say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. And those people have no clue what the New Testament teaches. <laughs> they really don't. I mean, this is, this is as good as it gets. And so who do people say that I am? And so they begin to have a discussion. It's just a few words mentioned here. But they begin to have an earnest discussion about what people are saying. And, and so and they said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist has just been put to death not too long before this, well, a little before this, but within a year or so, uh, by Herod, Herod Philip. Uh, in fact, Herod Philip, we're told, thought that Jesus was kind of John the Baptist coming back. Not People say he thought it was reincarnated, but Jesus was around with John, obviously. So he just thought, basically, that whatever John was, his spirit, his movement, passed on to Jesus. Um, but obviously, he wasn't John the Baptist, and he wasn't carrying on his ministry. Some said, you're Elias, Elijah. Uh, some people think you're that great prophet. He was the epitome of all the prophets, Elijah, and that you, uh, you was the forerunner to come to make way for the Messiah, but Jesus is the Messiah. Some said Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah talked about the new covenant with God, but Jesus was the new covenant. And they just talked about some of the other prophets, and they just probably had a lengthy discussion. We're not privy to it, don't mean to be, but they probably had a really good talk about it. And so Jesus then kind of cuts to it, and he says, but what about you? Who do you guys who do you say that I am? So now, th- these are the 12. You know, this is Peter and the guys, and Judas, they're all there. And they've been following him. And they've been, they've been a part of that. So Peter answers, and Peter probably answers for the group. And I, it, I want to stop and talk about Peter for a few moments, because there's so much misunderstanding about Peter, and it comes from this. And because there's misunderstanding by one group, other groups kind of want to take the opposite approach, and they misunderstand it. The Roman Catholics say that Peter was the first pope. They get this from here, uh, what Christ will say. There is no historical evidence that suggests that Peter, in any way, was the first pope, because you know, popes came around later. Uh, but beyond that, there's nothing in Scripture that ever says that Jesus put Peter in a place to have that kind of authority over the entire church. He's going to talk about the church. He, doesn't put, he never puts Peter as the leader of the church in that sense. 
Now, as is it about Southern Baptists? I understand that, and, and my my goal is to always you know understand what Scripture says. In reaction to the idea that Peter is Pope, non-Catholics, especially at the beginning of the Reformation, kind of really began to argue against that. Um, and uh, Luther would have argued against it. Calvin, and, and then you know later on comes a group called Baptists, and they really we really argue against it. And, and not only do we argue against it, but sometimes we make it sound like Peter really wasn't all that important. Uh, Dr. Herschel Hobbes is, is long since passed. Was one of the great scholars of all time. Uh, he has a PhD in Greek. That's uh, so what you understand. When your doctorate is in Greek, New Testament Greek, Old Greek, Dead Greek. You're brilliant. I mean, you're, you're just... I always tell Debbie, you know, if I ever go back and get another degree, I'm going to get a PhD in Greek. No, I'm not going to. But if I ever go get another you know, doctorate, it's going to be in Greek. I still hold out. My next doctorate, I'm telling you, is in Greek. I'm just not getting the next doctorate. It's not going to happen. He was pastor for years, you know, in Dell City in Oklahoma, and had, he, he was president of the Baptist Convention. When they redid the Baptist Faith message, the 1925 version of the Baptist Faith, the message, when they redid it in 1963, he headed it up. A lot of you, oh, you've been around, if you've been a Baptist a long, long time in Sunday school, and you used to do the Explore the Bible series. Anybody ever in Sunday school do the Explore the Bible series? And you had the commentary. It was written by Herschel Hobbes. Brilliant guy. Got his commentaries on the Gospels. Loving. Dr. Hobbes, God bless him, he makes it sound like Peter just wasn't all that important. And he says, oh, Peter, you know, he really wasn't the leader of those guys. Now, he wasn't the leader of the church, but he wasn't the leader of the apostles, the disciples. He goes, he's mentioned first, you know, in the list, but he just, you know, Peter kind of stuck, stuck out. He was impetuous. and He makes these statements, and you come to Acts, you know, and, and Peter is prominent, you know. And, and, and we just, we, we Baptists tend to just go the other direction with Peter. You need to, and I need to understand something. The leader of that group of guys was Simon Peter. Read the Gospels. Twelve apostles. Most of them, we don't even know anything about them. Most of them, they don't say anything. But in all four Gospels, including the one written by the Apostle Matthew, and the one written by the Apostle John, the apostle who takes leadership is Peter. Even in Luke, who was a Gentile who went around doing a bunch of research, same thing. The only gospel that really doesn't make Peter that prominent is Mark, because Mark got his info from Peter. When you come to the book of Acts, the book of Acts is, is really a book about the early church movement, and it focuses on two men, Peter and Paul. Now, I say that, and I always got people to say, I can't tell you how many times. The book is called the, the Acts of the Apostles. I can't tell you how many times I've heard pastors, and I've been at preachers' conferences, and they go up and say, it's not the book, it's not the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's, that's a good answer in Sunday school, okay? You know, and, and you say, who was the book of Acts really about? Well, it's all about Jesus. Well, I get that. But at some point, we quit giving Sunday school answers. And at some point, we have to grow and mature in our faith. And when Luke wrote this book about the growth of the church of Jesus Christ in Acts 1.8, Jesus says this, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You are going to go. You read the book of Acts, two guys, Peter and Paul, take precedence. In fact, interesting enough, if you look at all the apostles, okay, Judas is gone, the original 11 they added Matthias. We know Paul is an apostle. And, you know, James, the brother of Jesus, becomes an apostle. Do you know how many of those guys are quoted? I mean, there are a lot of people quoted. Pagans are quoted. 
The brother of Jesus is quoted in one brief part in chapter 15. Godless people are quoted. Herod Agrippa is quoted. Festus, Felix. Jewish leaders are quoted. Do you know how many apostles are quoted? I mean, really? I mean, maybe there's a slip place here and there. It's two. I mean, I mean, Stephen's quoted, but he's not an apostle. Philip the Evangelist is quoted, he's not an apostle. You know why? This book's about two guys. And the first part is about Peter. And you come to Matthew 16, and we get a glimpse of why it's that way. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks. Now, Peter is speaking for the whole group. We all say that. Here's here's the thing. When you go to Dr. Hobbes, Dr. Hobbes says, well, Peter is probably speaking for the group. If you're speaking for the group, you know what that makes you? The leader of the group. Now, sometimes people want to speak for me. I'm like, no, speak for me. But, you know, if, if, if I'm a part of a group and you're speaking on our behalf, you may not be the, but you are one of the leaders. And this is what Peter says. You are the Christ, the Son, the one and only Son of the living, living God. Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. Peter says this, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, deity. You are God in the flesh. And that is, when all is said and done, the most important Christological statement made by anyone in the New Testament. Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's, there's no, you know, we say Jesus is Lord, that's correct. What does it mean that we say that he is Lord? It means he is the Christ, the Son of God. God, period, in the story, that's the statement. And what does Jesus say? He says to Peter, you see, verse 17, here's what Matthew writes. Now, Matthew's writing in Greek, whether Jesus spoke in Greek or spoke in Aramaic, and Matthew translated back into Greek, Greek is critical. Jesus said to him, Peter, blessed are you. Who's he talking to? Simon Bar-Jonah. You guy, Simon, son of John. A couple of Simons. You know, Simon's a popular name. Simon. His name was Simon Johnson. That's what it means. Bar-Jonah means Simon Johnson. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he says to Peter, and Peter made me speak for everybody. They've probably discussed this many times. Peter's probably the one that formulated the expression. He says, you're blessed. But flesh and blood, humanity did not reveal this to you. Remember, everything we know about Jesus is revealed to us. Nothing we know about Jesus is on our own. Peter didn't discover anything about Jesus. He didn't come up with this on his own. It was revealed to him. By whom? Father revealed it. The Lord revealed it to him. Peter, he says, my father in heaven, he showed you this. And then this is what Jesus says. And this is where everybody gets all out of kilter. I also say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And everybody has to figure out what this means. Because how you understand this one little verse will absolutely, positively determine your understanding of the church. First time the word church is used. The word church is the word ecclesia. It is the called out ones. It is not at this point talking about a local church. Later on, 
Paul talks about the local church all the time. He talks about, you know, the church at Philippi and the church here. You know, all these churches. Here it is the church universal. The Catholic church, little c, not big, capital C. Not Roman Catholic. Catholic means universal. It is that church. He said, you are Peter. Now, in John chapter 1, when Jesus first kind of encounters Peter, though he's probably known him before, he says, you know, you're Simon. You're going, you're going to at some point be called Peter. Now he says you are Peter. The word Peter comes from the Greek word petros. It means rock. It's the idea of a rock that is a part of another rock. Okay? It's a broken off piece. So you go out there, lots of rocks everywhere. You know, we got little rocks that we, you know, we, in the yard out there. And then we got big rocks falling around. Out here, you know, there are rocks. The other day, you know, we're trying, to, we're trying to control traffic going down during the week. People are cutting through here. We're fixing to do some stuff. So we got some, we have some barricades. People were popping the curb. So Barry told me, so I don't do much, but, you know, I was a little bit irritated about that. So I went down, and I picked up these rocks to probably four or 500 pounds each. And I just picked them up and began moving them. So that anybody that pops that curb is going to pop something else on their car. I did it. In righteous indignation and fiery anger, calling down upon them who did that all the wrath of God that I could muster. Those are Petros. Plural, they're Petroi. <laughs> Petros is just not a Greek word. They're Petroi, multiple Petros. So I taught you some Greek. Singular is Petros, plural is Petroi. You learn more Greek than you ever know. He said, You are the rock. And then upon this rock, I will build my assembly. But the word he uses for rock now is Petra. It is actually a feminine form. All you ladies can rejoice. You know, the Bible is not masculine and sexist. The Petra means those mountains sitting back behind us. The Oregon Mountains, those are Petra. Those are rock. And he said, upon the rock, I will build my church. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you're Catholic, you kind of understand it to mean that he's going to build the church upon Peter. I'm not here to argue for that or even argue against it. It's just grammatically, it doesn't make sense. Let me just say this. Grammatically, it doesn't mean that. He's not building his church upon the Petros. He's building it upon the Petra, two different things. He's not building it on the little rock on the side of the road. He's building it on the mountain. He could look off and see the city of Caesarea Philippi on a mountain, a Petra. Historically, that isn't accurate, unless you really want to bend history. It's just not accurate. But now we tend to, as Baptists and others, say, well, it's not that, but what is it then? Well, some people will tell you that he built the church, and I heard this all the time growing up, on the rock of the statement of, G, of Peter. Peter said, you're the Christ of the Son of the living God. That that's the rock. Only that ain't right. The church is not built upon a statement. It's not. But it's our faith in Jesus. Our faith in Jesus matters. We're saved by faith. Everybody believe we're saved by faith? But you know what doesn't happen on faith? Jesus doesn't build his church on our faith. Because he didn't build his church on us. He builds it on the Petra. So what is the Petra? 
That's why it's so great that we have all the New Testament. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. He gave a glimpse at the end of it. He said, he who hears these words of mine, hears these words of mine and obeys them, is like the person who built his house upon the rock. And then you read what Paul says. And Paul keeps talking about the church. And here's what Paul says about Jesus. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation stone. He is the foundation upon which the church, universal and small, is built. Who is the church built upon? It's built upon Jesus. Now some will tell you, but Jesus doesn't allude to that here. Okay, but there's nothing else it can be. It ain't Peter. And it's theologically wrong to say it's our faith. It is theologically correct to say it is Jesus. Now think of what those guys are hearing him say. I'm going to build my ecclesia, my assembly, not on you guys, but on the church. But now here's the important part. It doesn't mean that Peter's not important. Because here's what we do. We just cast Peter off. He's not doing that. He says, Peter, you are a part of that rock. There's the big rock. There's the Petra. Here's the Petros. You're the Petros. I'm building my church on that. I'm building my church. And you guys are a part of it. When you what? Proclaim that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. How do people become part of the church? Are you born into the church? No. Are you baptized into the church? Not really. Baptized into a local church, but not the church universal. How do you become a part of the church? When you acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. And how do you know that Jesus is the Christ? When we are told that, and he's going to go on and speak about that in just a moment. But he says more to that. He says, the gates of what shall not prevail against you? The gates of Hades. How many times have you heard hell? All the time. The word in the Greek is Hades. Now, in seventh grade, I took Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, there is Hades. Hades is a place and a Greek deity. It is the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, what you see is you never see in the Old Testament are references to heaven and hell. When people die in the Old Testament, they go to Sheol. Sheol is Hebrew for the place of the dead. Now, in the place of the dead, there is rewards and punishment. It's not that heaven and hell didn't exist. It's that they didn't understand it. God reveals things to us progressively, bit by bit by bit. You know what he doesn't reveal in the Old Testament? Heaven and hell. Place of the dead. Sheol, which in Greek is Hades, is death. Now, there's a place for hell. If you go into chapter 25, and Jesus talks about the separation of the sheep and the goats, and the goats are going to a place of fire and burning. They're going to a place of eternal suffering. The word translated hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna means the place of the fire. Outside of Jerusalem, there was the Valley of Hinnom. It was a garbage dump. When I was, when I was in pastoring between Lockhart and Luling, we didn't have trash service. We burned our trash. And one of the pastors before me burned not only the trash, but the parsonage as well when it caught fire from his burning. So here's the thing. 
they, would, they didn't have trash service, okay? They, they didn't take the trash cans out at 6 in the morning. You know, they took everything, including the dead, to the Valley of Hinnom, and they dumped it, and it was burning, and it burned 24-7. It is the picture of hell. The concept is death. Now, think about Gates. Can I tell you how many times I've heard preachers say, God bless them. I got it. I understand. The gates of hell, we're in a spiritual war and we're storming the gates of hell. And hell cannot prevail against the church. Well, okay, but that's not what he's saying. He's not talking about the church storming the gates of hell. What do gates do? Gates keep people out, keep people in. Depending on your perspective. Gates are doors. That door is a barrier. It separates. That's what gates do. Gates separate and they lock. And so the concept of death is that place that is the enemy of all humans. What is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15? Death, sin, where's your victory? Death is the enemy. Death is the foe. That's why hell is described in some places as eternal death. In John 11, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will not die. Second death. Okay? He who is dead and believes in me will live forever. The person who has died physically will live spiritually. He's talking about death is the great enemy because we were born to have life. That's why salvation, eternal salvation, is almost always called by Jesus eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, as opposed to death. The power of death that grips is the enemy of humanity. And this is what Jesus says. That power of death, which has this barrier between man and itself, will not overcome the fact that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon which the church is built. The church will be victorious over that power of death. He is the resurrected Jesus who's victorious over death. So when you go to places, you're going to preach the gospel, you're preaching eternal life. Death will not win. And if that's not clear enough, look what he says after, and this is completely misunderstood. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of what? Heaven, as opposed to Hades. And it's not a location, it's a condition, it's the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. Not will be bound. It's not whatever you bind on earth will be bound. It's already been bound. And whatever you loosen on earth will have already been loosened in heaven. Those, it's, a, it's a rare Greek structure. You don't care about it. But being loosened and being bound means this. Things are already loosened and already bound from the eternal standpoint. The keys of the kingdom. Think about gates, half white, locks. You have the key to the lock that overcomes the power of death. What is that key? It is the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What are they going to do with that information? Go to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Peter starts preaching. Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Acts chapter 3, Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Acts chapter 4, Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. You get the picture? Jesus. They preach, Paul said, I preach Christ, I preach him crucified. 
What do they say all over the New Testament? When you get past the gospel, we preach Jesus. We preach Jesus. The resurrected Jesus. Why? Because that is the key that unlocks victory over the power of death. And so, wherever these guys go, and they begin to preach, it has already been determined that whatever they loosen will be is loosened in heaven. It's already been done by God. That's the power of, of, of the message. If they don't go anywhere, then they're already bound. And that's how it is. So what happens? You read, you read uh, Paul. Paul, and Paul becomes one of the Paul, Paul goes off and he starts preaching in places. And what happens? People start getting saved. They were bound by the power of death. Paul preached that Jesus is the Christ. And when he had that power, what happened? They were loosened. Because that's what's been determined by the Lord. Not these guys. Not you and me. Because what's the determining factor? It's that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not the faith that he's Christ, as important as it is. That's not the determining factor. It is that he is Christ. Jesus is the determining factor. So here, think about this for a moment. He's not talking to us in Matthew 16. You've got to understand that. He's talking to them. One day, them will end up translating into us. Okay? So one day, you and I will be sitting in a church somewhere that's really comfortably air-conditioned. And I did turn the air-conditioning up because it's cold. Now it's a little bit warm. I turned it up. Not Joe, not Troy, not Brian, not Mike, no one else but me. So you could be a little warmer. You may thank me later. But I'm burning up right now. I ain't doing that again. It's a one-time thing. You know how I preached on grace this month? That was grace. And you didn't earn it, and I ain't doing it again. But this wasn't written to tell us what we're going to do. It was written to tell these guys what they're going to do. We read it, and we learn what they did, and we continue that process. Here's what he's saying. Six months from the cross, who do you guys say that I am? Jesus, you're the Christ. The Son of the living God. All right, here's what's going to happen. You guys, Peter, you're leading this group. You're going to go, and wherever you preach that message, the power, the gate, the force of death will be overwhelmed by that gospel. And I'm going to take that statement you made, and I want you to know you're going to preach it. And upon the truth that exists, upon that truth, I'm building my church. I ain't building my church on you. I'm building my church on me. Why? Because I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God. I'm the son of man. I'm the Christ. And upon me, the church is going to be built. But it's going to be built brick by brick, Petros by Petros, when you go proclaim that truth you just uttered. You go tell everybody else that. And I'm going to build my church. And when you go do that, I'm going to open up from heaven. The power of heaven is going to open up the gospel. And people will get saved. And not even Hades itself, not even death itself can stop that from happening. That's a pretty powerful statement. That's a whole lot better than, hey, Peter, you're the first pope. That's a whole lot better than, you know, as Baptists, upon our faith that we preach, Christ builds his church. (laughs) That explains why so many Baptist churches really stink. It says to us, Jesus, Christ. Builds his church on that. What do we do? Go tell people about who? About Jesus. They trust him. That's what we do. Then he says this. <laughs> then, then he said this. 
He didn't tell us. Then he warned the disciples. <laughs> I love this. That he should tell no one that he was the Christ. I was like, that doesn't make sense. Except, don't tell them yet. Because it's not time. God, they're, all, they're all excited. Let's go. No. You got about six months. Jesus, let's go tell everybody. No. Six months. Can you guys wait six months? You don't have a choice. Why? Because you know what they still needed? What do they still need? The Holy Spirit. He's only given them some. He's got a lot more to give them. He's got to give them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not coming yet. Now, I got in. I have like, I have a four-week series on this. I have a six-week series on the rest of it. I got several great series on this. But here's the thing. You know, any, more people come. In verse 21, he starts talking about, you know, his death. And Peter says, you know, forbid it. He says, get behind me, Satan. What a great. One minute, you're the, you know, you, you're talking about Christ, the Son of the living God, and you're, you're blessed, Peter. The next minute, he calls you the Son of Satan, basically. Verse 24, Jesus said this to all his disciples. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then he talks about losing his life and all that. It doesn't really matter. Here's the thing. It matters, but not for what I'm saying. I mean, it matters, obviously, but not for this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. To understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, results in you denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. It's connected. This is the radical, the radical formation of the church. The church was totally and completely radical. I hear people all the time, well, the church was just kind of a derivative of the synagogue. No, it wasn't. It may have been set up somewhat like the synagogue. Synagogue may have given them some structural model. You know what the synagogue didn't have? It didn't have Jesus as Savior of the world who died and was raised back to life. It didn't have the Holy Spirit. It wasn't followed after the synagogue. They may have created some worship services that resemble the synagogue. It wasn't like the synagogue because the church ultimately wasn't really a building. They didn't even have places to meet. They just had people. And the people ended up living out all of this stuff. And that's true today. Our task is to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when we proclaim that message, people who are bound will be loosened. Not because of us, but because God has determined that's what he will do. So what is the purpose of a church? I'm pretty sure if you go back to the very beginning of the church, it just so happens to be in Matthew 16. It tells us what we ought to be doing. If we'll do that, then when we have Epic Sunday and we have all those baptisms, we'll be having four, five, six times that many all the time. Questions you may have. Yes, ma'am. Is he speaking to just his disciples or is he speaking to us? And what, what does the word take up his cross? Well, he's, yeah, he's, he's speaking to those disciples. Okay. Jesus is never speaking to us. He's always speaking to them. We're listening in to what Jesus says and applying it to our life. He speaks to us secondarily. So always understand he's speaking to them. Now, we become one of them 
And so we learn from that. So don't get freaked out when I said he's not speaking to us, okay? Don't, you, know, you understand what I'm saying. You're all old enough and mature enough to get that. He's speaking to them. We're listening in to them. Still applies to us. So when I preach this passage, which I've done many times, I tell folks, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. I preached this from Mark three or four months ago, I think, maybe, maybe summer. But I preached this from Mark recently, within the last year. Time, is it just me or does time just kind of all fade into one week, you know? Like, I, every sermon I preached in the last two years, I preached like a couple of weeks ago. It just seemed to all blends there. Uh, you nodded, so I'm assuming you're with me. Uh, or you just think my sermons all blend together and it's just awesome. Deny yourself means this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, imperatives. When you deny yourself, you no longer put yourself first. So you're denying the, the primacy of self. To take up your cross means to the point of death. It means you have died to yourself. It doesn't mean you're willing to die for Jesus. I've heard that a hundred times. It means you're dead to yourself. To be dead to yourself is connected to denying. Denying and taking up your cross are the same thing. Or connected, or two sides of the same coin. You deny yourself to the point that you no longer are alive for you. You live for Christ. You no longer live for yourself. To follow Jesus means to go alongside Jesus and live for him. So to take up your cross means you don't live for you. You live for Jesus. You follow him. Does that help? In the last part of Second uh, Peter where he closes out that book, he gives uh, accolades to Paul. Yes. Uh, Paul rebuked him, and he, he recognizes that, but he still gives him accolade. Yes. And my question is, Peter was a fisherman. He came up through the ranks, so to speak, and yet he could project what's going to happen in the end times. How can that be, except by the Lord Jesus? Well, anything's by the Lord Jesus. Now, tell me where Peter projects what's going to happen in the end times. What power are you talking about? How the earth will uh, undergo burning. It will burn up. It will incinerate. I'm not sure I follow. Where? Okay, verse seven, chapter three, verse seven. But his word, by his, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, destruction for ungodly men. Uh, now let this one fact is okay. But he's not saying that it's going to be burned up. He's saying the judgment of fire. Fire is always a symbol of either ignorance, darkness, or judgment. Always those things. So he's talking about everything that pertains to the worldly nature and rebellion against God is going to be burned up. Revelation tells us there's a new heaven and a new earth. So, so, that, so you got to take all of that in, in, in totality. So the, the fire that he's talking about there is the, is the judging fire that, in essence, purifies and cleanses and will leave behind what things should be. So the Lord is sharing that with him, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, he's telling it to his readers, and we're reading it too, so we come alongside it. Anything else? I'll see you at Worship Under the Stars, and if not, then on Epic Sunday.
Thank you.